Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to the co-founder, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How is it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in, make sure that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. Check out all the content that we put out there on the internet, focuscompounding.com. Best place to get everything is my Twitter, at Focus Compound. We have lied to everybody. We said July 1st, uh, 20 of uh, the most recent podcasts would be available for everybody, but we lied. Um, we're actually going to probably be a couple more weeks, but no, we have something coming out in a couple days. Maybe by the time this comes out, it'll be <laughs> up and running. I don't know, but be sure to download the backlog if that's something you're interested in. So today's podcast, mm -hmm. we're going to revisit a lot of stocks that people just ask about you know, all the time to you. The okay. most common companies that people reach out to talk about with you. All right. And we're going to be using QuickFS. If you want to sign up for QuickFS, tell me came from Focus Compounding. And Jeff said the number one stock that gets emailed in to mm -hmm. him is Omnicom. Right. And you did a singular diligence report on it. Yep. We've spoken about it a lot in the podcast. Mm -hmm. We usually use it for examples with valuation. Yep. Why do you think people ask you about this company a lot? Um, one, it's big. So people, that's a popular one for people to ask about is big stocks. I guess about those more than uh, smaller stocks usually. And then two, I mention all the time. Three, it looks actually cheap based on like the basic value um, sorts of things. And then it doesn't look like it has that much in the way of problems as compared to things that have um, the value stuff that people want to avoid. So people for whatever reason, you know, don't avoid ad agencies and stuff the same way they might other kind. like I think we've mentioned uh, in a previous podcast, Movado, right? So it's a watch company. Some people will just be like, oh, it's a watch company. I'm not going to touch it, you know? Um, so I think th those are all the reasons, yeah. Okay. Um, so we're, and probably because you did write a very extensive report on it as well. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote a report on it, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's currently trading at $55.26. I think in the past you have said if it's anywhere near where it is right now, you would buy it. Yeah, I said in the past. Uh, well, I didn't say I would buy it, but I'd say feel free to buy it. To, if to if buy people it. like the stock. We would not buy it for the fund or anything. Uh, like, if yeah. people like the stock, then I see no harm in buying it at $65 or under, sure. Um, I don't see any harm in buying it unless anytime you can buy it at sales, I think. So if you go to um, from overview to key ratios, yeah. I think it should have sales per share for you. We could calculate ourselves, but um, revenue per share, per share in numbers. What does it say revenue is right now? Oh. Far right yep. down there. $67.69. So there you go. So if the stock's below $67.69, I think it's fine to buy it. People do an EV thing. I think that's a little complicated for an ad agency. As long as it doesn't seem to be loading up on debt, which I don't think Omnicom is, I think you're fine at buying it at a uh, price to sales of one. Mm -hmm. This says the EV to sales is one. That may be true, but like I said, it's like movements and working capital and stuff are kind of complicated at, at, at agencies. So why do you think it's trading so cheap? Is it because of the current environment we're in and maybe people thinking that ad agencies are going to take a hit because of a recession? Um, I don't know about that. I actually think uh, it's mostly, it hasn't overreacted to that part of it. I think it's mostly an incredible amount of unpopularity of ad agencies as stocks versus the Facebooks and the Googles and stuff of the world. Because if you look look at their revenue growth recently, right? Mm -hmm. So now they did dispose of something. So, so this isn't entirely accurate. Um, but for the last five years or so, they haven't really grown their um, revenue. 
Right. So that is why I think, because there's been basically no revenue growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think to some extent inflation, the lack of inflation, ad agencies would do better with inflation. So um, if you have very, very low growth numbers, it's a problem. Um, and some things have really changed with ad agencies. I would say I misjudged the stock previously and ad agencies generally in understanding how much things had changed in the business. Mm-hmm. What about retention rates at Omnicom? Yeah, that's not the part that I think is a problem. I think it um, has to do with the transparency and stuff of the ad buying, the media buying. I think the media buying part of it is more the complicated part. So like, what do you mean by that? Um, so they buy media. So there's sort of two parts of the business. I mean, if I'm super simplifying it, there's a creative part of the business and then there's the um, buying of it, The basically being a broker for um, uh, ad spots, let's say. So I think that online has changed some things that way. And um, I think that's the part of the business that it, that has potentially changed more in a way that might matter to earnings and free cash flow over time. The mar- the actual market for media spots, um, I think, has changed a bit. And that was the part that I misjudged. If you were to do Scuttlebutt on Omnicom, and we always talk about this, how mm-hmm. it could be more challenging, I guess you could say, with large. Like, what would you do for Omnicom? Well, we do kind of. So, I mean, you, you'd read the major trade um, magazines. Uh, we, we know who their, um, biggest, uh, um, agencies are, and it's not difficult to know who the biggest clients for those agencies are. So you could come up with a list over time of the biggest clients of Omnicom. Um, I think it will be very, very hard to get information from those companies about their agency that they worked with and stuff The you could talk a lot to former employees and people like that. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, people have been a few of them. Yeah. All right. What is the next stock on the list that people ask a lot? Um, Over-the-counter markets? Yeah. We talked about it recently. Got a lot of questions about over-the-counter markets. Um, This is one that we talk about, and um, unlike Omnicom, I've actually uh, owned, uh, do own. Um, It is an interesting stock that is less uh, liquid than you would expect, given its size and stuff. Um, it's probably the business I like best. Yeah. It's probably the business that I like best. So maybe that's why people ask about it. Mm-hmm. People also like these infinite return on capital ones. Mm-hmm. So unlike Omnicom, the, let's look at their last three or four or five years. So Omnicom had a lot of 0% to, um, or so revenue growth, you know, slightly positive, slightly negative. And here, what's our lowest revenue growth? Um, let's see. I think we had 1.4% in 2013. But other than that, it's like 184 19%. Then it's 2.2, 7 8.9, 6.2. But the 10-year CAGR on revenue has been about 10% at 9.7%. Yeah. So that's why I like it um, is because of the revenue growth at basically infinite returns on capital. Um, so if you look at the EV to free cash flow, for example, which maybe is too aggressive a thing to use because they don't actually, it's not like they're going to suddenly use all their cash to buy back stock or something. They, they let it sit on the balance sheet, their float generally. Um, it's about 20 times. So that'd be about a 5% yield. And then if you're growing at almost 10%, you know, you can see how you could get a 10 to 15% return in the stock long-term and you don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly it just has to do with the structure of the business. I like it that way. So it's one that I find kind of predictable or whatever. Others may disagree with me. We also specialize in this area of the market. So maybe that's part of it. Like we specialize in over-the-counter stocks. Literally, I spend my days mostly on their website 
that's actually how I look up quotes and things because it's the most reliable for looking up quotes on over-the-counter things. And then it just has similar quotes on the exchange trade stuff. Do you remember what originally got you interested in the stock? Um, I don't know if I know the answer to that. Why? I was, I, I, you, I, you were the I read a Seeking Alpha. Oh, did you? And I thought it was interesting. I'm like, oh, this is a business I feel like Jeff would be interested in. And there you go. There you go. Seeking Alpha. So not my stock idea, Andrew. So if clients have a problem with it later, no, 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 no. Remember I, to mention that to Andrew. I just knew that you'd be interested in it. Um, Naco. Yes. So we got this one. Uh, this is all mine. So clients can know that this Andrew had nothing to do with selecting this one. Um, Naco is a very difficult to tell from. So again, gram number, right? Mm. 5.4 P 0.6 price to book. That suggests, uh, you know, your gram number, there's about three. So that's an incredible value stock. Those tend to work very well. The gram number thing I know is like, um, or however you want to say if it's a gram number or what number, uh, what number people want to call it. That is pretty reliable in determining if something's a value stock. This is an incredibly, um, if you wonder what a value stock looks like, NACO is what a value stock looks like. Mm -hmm. So, um, it doesn't have free cash flow and stuff this year, may not for a little while, has different parts to the business. Um, the biggest concern people have, of course, is that their minds will close over time and they may, and one of them could soon. But to be honest, when I bought into the stock, um, before we had managed money and stuff, I would have expected that by about this time is when a mine would have been closing just on the probabilities. If I was buying five years or whatever before, um, you would expect that given the number of clients that they had and the chances that they would shut down and stuff, that's kind of what you had already factored in, in terms of prices. So the price never was not reflecting losing a customer. Um, if you think about it to be fairly valued, the price had to always be reflecting losing a customer at some point. And they, by the way, management isn't hundred percent saying that they will lose the customer, but the customer is saying they're planning to shut down. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it uh, has plenty of cash and I think they're diversifying to other things and stuff. This is not one I would own if I didn't think that management was going to take the capital and put it elsewhere over time. But I think that's what they're doing. We get a ton of questions about this with this about coal. So I get recommended lots of other coal companies and I do look at them, but their business models are generally different. So even though some did mind mouth operations, just like NACO, they used a lot of debt to do it. Right. And that's different. Um, they would buy up the, and own the mine and use a lot of debt. So there were one or two companies that did that, that have gone bankrupt. Um, the other ones that people suggest to me are metallurgical coal. And, um, that's involving, uh, big price movements. I don't know if we can find that. Maybe you could put that in. Let's see if you can find a quote on met coal. So just do met coal price per ton and see if you can get a chart anywhere um there we go yeah oh it's not going to give you a chart by time is it it's just going to give you does this give you a time one at all mm. exports okay but if you go up higher does that price do they have prices for you at all or not yeah there's prices I'm trying to find like a so, chart though oh not just like one week at a time uh anyway they move around a lot. And so if you look at the price, here's the deal. Um, if you look, uh, is would that work? Trading economics one. Um, okay, so let's, what is it showing me? All right, yeah. That'll give you an idea. So if you can go to a longer term chart, like a five or 10 year chart. Yeah. Um, so anyway, what happens is that it's at times below the marginal uh, cost for a lot of companies. And so like recently it has been, which drives people crazy. But basically it means that if 
things keep going as they are. Most of the coal companies making metallurgical coal should shut down. And once they take that out, of course, that should cause the prices to go back up. And so you should keep having this up and down cycle. Um, but at the top of them, the prices are usually a, uh, high enough to give really high profits. So like there's some companies that would have a profit margin of, you know, I don't know, like um, their gross margin or whatever, and it might be 40 or 50% or something at the top, and yet it's below their cost of production at the bottom. That's not unusual. So it's just a very different commodity than when we're talking about a cost plus type thing. So people ask about that all the time, um, but it's not what NACO's in. Um, I get emails about CSVI a lot. We actually, yeah. somebody actually reached out or asked that recently, I think on the podcast. Yeah, we would have done better if I had held CSVI instead of going into some other things, mostly because of the things I went into, not because of selling CSVI so much. But um, yeah, it's not that cheap. So my problem is that, like, let's look at the earnings growth in the last few years. Um, 10%. I mean, sorry, revenue growth. 6.3%. Over the full 10 years. Yeah, over the full, full 10 years. And yeah. As we go last five, is 1.5, 4.5. 2018, 6.2, 2019, 5.5, and 2020, 7.9. Yeah, exactly. And so um, we're talking about a fairly low number. I don't know if it's 5 or 6%. It's in line with like GDP or something like that. Um, the EV to free cash flow is 30. So that's rough. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about it, you're getting a free cash flow yield of 3%, let's say, and your growth is 5 or 6%. I mean, it might be a very sure eight or nine percent return, but that's all it is. So that's kind of the difficulty of why would you sell something else to buy into that? Um, like the business, a lot and stuff. It's just a matter of five times sales is a lot. Um, whereas I think there's more growth in OTC markets. A big thing here to point out too is this looks like it has ten year growth of like six percent. OTC markets maybe nine or ten percent. Some people might say that's not that big a difference. But when I'm suggesting like whether I buy a stock or something, it has to do with my looking forward part. And so for some reason, I'm looking forward, say, the next 10 years, not the past 10 years, and thinking a lot more about OTC markets growing their revenue than uh, computer services. But OTCM is still trading on a multiple basis cheaper, and they have infinite returns on capital, and their revenue growth is higher than... Um Oh, yeah. CSVI. No, I would always prefer OTC than CSVI um, if they were at similar prices. And they're not. Actually, OTCM is at about two-thirds the price of CSVI. I don't know why that happens. Because CSVI used to be cheaper than OTC markets mm -hmm. when we first bought it. So, um, What's a bank that you get asked a lot about? I get asked a lot about Frost. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I do get asked a lot about Frost because I use it as an example all the time. Um. Yeah, so Frost got very cheap um, during this crisis. I don't know, it, was it the 40s or something? Do you have a chart somewhere that you can find it? Um, I would say it might have gotten down to as low as in the 40s uh, during this. Yeah, the absolute low, I think. Yeah, it's not going to tell you. Yeah, 49. I think it was around. Oh, here we go. It should give me 22. the 52-week. 47.69, yeah. So I knew someone who bought some of it. It put a lot more into it at around 48. So 47.69, yeah. Put a lot into it at about 48. Um, and not a lot, I mean, um, a very large portion of his portfolio into it. Um, so it, I like the bank, um, for a big bank, I think it's very attractive. Uh, you know, this is something that's still just in Texas. Um, and I don't know though, when people ask like, why do I prefer this over some of the very big banks and stuff? I don't know that I 
do necessarily. We could put in some of them. Some yeah, of them are cheaper. Like JP Morgan, Wells Fargo. Right. So some of them are a bit cheaper. So that's marginally cheaper. Let's see. Yeah. Go back to Frost for a second. This is like 11 times. Yeah. And one point. They're about the same. No, actually, I like Frost a lot better than the JP Morgan. So why I, is that? Um, so JP Morgan's in some other businesses mm -hmm. that I don't like as much. I mean, JP Morgan breaks it out into like four different businesses or something like that to show you. But the, the, um, uh, Frost is getting big enough that some of its business and the corporate side might be JP Morgan ish, but, um, it's not an investment bank and it isn't, it, it, it gets more of its earnings from the part that is similar to the part of JP Morgan, I think is the best. So the part that serves the public and businesses, um, of a smaller size, uh, a little bit more relationship based and stuff instead of the super large size. JP Morgan is just so big that part of the business I think is a little competitive. That's not a knock on it and stuff. If any bank gets that big, that becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. And then I just like Texas as a place to have all your business versus the all over the country. I would rather be just in Texas than all over the country. All right. I got a stock. Okay. I know people ask a lot about. Berkshire Hathaway. Can't tell anything from the um, quick FS. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Berkshire Hathaway is a lot cheaper versus the market now than it has been for most of the last couple decades. But I also think it's further along its development to where that's a problem. We've talked a little bit about that. Berkshire is so big that it's a real difficulty allocating that capital mm -hmm. and they have to figure out something to do about that if they want to have good returns over the long term but if we i don't know can we get a chart like just go to like yeah otc markets something will work fine for this one okay so if we do this we can easily put in uh berkshire uh and then nope oh not good advertising uh, that's not the, yeah, you need there. Nope. nope. Page not Still found. Still not good advertising. Um, yeah, the problem, this isn't going to, I mean, you got to go to there to give me the S&P 500 and stuff, but. Oh, are you going to compare it? Yeah, that was why, because it works go. much better on, uh, yeah, be careful with Yahoo Finance, though. It's got enough ads and stuff on it no. to crash your computer. Um. Yeah, it has fine. The charts on it are fine. I've used them to screenshot things and stuff because they're a little more visible. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, and then just compare to, just do comparison and then uh, S&P 500 for a second. Oh, we've now revealed every stock you've ever looked at. Um, <laughs> Actually, I don't think I've... Uh, I don't know. There was at least a stock in there that's definitely something that you were looking at for us. Um well, this is not working well. It's is no nothing's working today. This is a failure. All right. So uh, anyway, it's not important. But uh, my my point is just that um, the S and P five hundred has not really grown its value faster than Berkshire Hathaway for a long time now. So when people talk about the outperformance of the S and P versus Berkshire, that's really um, that's really a valuation thing. Mm -hmm. And so going back about. 20 years 15 to 20 years now i think berkshire was a lot more expensive versus the market if you look at berkshire's berkshire as a price to book of 1.2 for instance it's showing here compared to the past a much much larger portion of berkshire's um business is worth a premium to book okay 
Now, that's debatable. Like, um, so for instance, 10 years, right? It's price to book is about the same as it was 10 years ago, right? Yeah. But it's over time has built up much more in the way of businesses that are um, worth more than, than a price to book of one, definitely. So it is um, cheaper in that sense. And the market has also gotten more elevated uh, versus things like price to book. So I think that it's much more attractive than the market relative to what it was versus the market a decade or, or like 15 years or so ago. And how much of their investment portfolio is now Apple now? It's a, it's pretty it's significant. A lot. Yeah. yeah, it's significant. Yeah, but they're sitting on a tremendous amount of cash that can be deployed to whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's true, but a lot of their um, money's in cash that can go into something else. My concern with Berkshire is the stuff it's going to go into in the future, not what Berkshire is today. If it was just what is Berkshire today, would you break it up and would it be worth more than the S&P and stuff? Yeah, it's cheap on that kind of basis. What I would worry about is uh, where do you put, like where do you put $100 million in cash, you know? Um, things like that. So, and like even Apple. So Apple was a good investment for them. There's, it's huge. I mean, how do you find another thing like Apple? You don't, you can't find things with trillion market caps that are attractive, so. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time that you are joining us, make sure you hit the subscribe button both on YouTube and the podcast side of things. Having a lot of fun doing it. The number one value investing audience in the world. We appreciate all the support. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound, and we will see you in the next podcast.